You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Jennifer Lamont Leo joins us today for a chat about Hollywood, Christians in Film, and her latest release, Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams. For today's Pinch of the Past, we're looking at a children's temperance society in the 1800s, the Band of Hope. Apparently, some things never change. And today's bookworm review is His Delightful Lady Delia by Grace Hitchcock. With a passion for all things historical, Jennifer Lamont Leo captures readers' hearts through stories set in times gone by. Her first novel, You're the Cream in My Coffee, won an ACFW Carol Award in the debut novel category. Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams is her fifth novel. Jennifer also hosts a podcast called A Sparkling Vintage Life, which celebrates the grace and charm of an earlier era. She lives on a mountain in northern Idaho, where she shares her home with her husband, two cats, and abundant wildlife. Jennifer Lamont Leo, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I was first introduced to your work when Angela Bell, one of our reviewers, reviewed Moondrop Miracle last year. You write stories that are mostly set in the 20s and 30s. They're urban life. You also have a lumberjack and ladies novella as part of a set with Barber. So what draws you particularly to historical fiction? I don't really know, except that since early childhood, I've been drawn to stories about the olden days, whether it was stories from my parents' or my grandparents' childhoods, or one of my favorite series was Little House on the Prairie. And I just loved imagining life long ago. And I'm a very sentimental person, and so I hang on to things like photographs or old jewelry. And I love when there's stories behind these objects. And if there's not a story, I'm likely to make one up. I think fiction can convey history in a way that's maybe more palatable to some people than reading a history textbook or a nonfiction book. You kind of get absorbed in a story, and the next thing you know, you've learned something (laughs) about history. And so I just, I'm tempted to say I was born in the wrong era, but we know God doesn't make mistakes. So I'm exactly where I should be. But for some reason, I've just always been drawn to generations and stories that have gone before us. Yes, yes. I can definitely relate to that. I loved just sitting when my grandpa would come over to our house when I was a little girl and just hearing his stories. And I always I also felt a little odd in my generation. I like to watch classical movies and listen to old music that no one my age knows about. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how it was. Yeah. So when it was time for me to start writing, that's it was I felt like that was my natural stomping grounds to start with. And I love it. So I'll I'm planning to continue to write historical. Wonderful. Now, are there any special books or authors that have inspired you over the years? It would very 
be very hard to name one. <laughs> but there were, I'm drawn to mid 20th century authors, early 20th century. I don't know why I love that time period so much. But for example, Grace Livingston Hill, I love reading her books, which of course, they weren't historical at the time she wrote them in the 30s or the 20s. They were contemporary and in her time, but I love reading them both for the the stories and for the period details she's she gives. So she'd be one of my major influences. I also love Daphne du Maurier, who wrote Rebecca, and a British author named E.M. Delafield. She's not a household name today, but she wrote a very, very clever series called The Diary of a Provincial Lady. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. It is. It just drew me in and made me laugh and I would love to write like her someday. But yeah, uh, that would be, I'm also, I enjoy Agatha Christie too. And one day I would like to try my hand at writing a mystery. I haven't tried that yet. It seems complicated, but I would love to try. I'd love to do a, like a cozy mystery series. So keep watching. (laughs) Maybe I'll do it. Yeah, that would be so fun. And there's just something so attractive about cozy mystery where you can have, especially historical cozy mystery, where you can have just that romantic elements and everything, that, but also just the the questions and the different ways that kind of you build suspense and mystery and the twists and turns of a mystery that would just be so fun. Yeah, but not the blood and gore. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> nice story. And I love that you mentioned Grace Livingston Hill. She's one of my favorites too, because like you said, when she was writing, it was contemporary fiction. So she puts in all these details that we readers of her time took for granted, but for us, they're very interesting historical details. So yeah, it's very, it's part enjoyment and part research when, when I read her books. It really is. Mm-hmm. Plus her writing's beautiful. I also love Lucy Maud Montgomery. I'm sure I'm not alone in that, but Anne of Green Gables and just the whole series that she wrote. She was a master too. Now that one, those at the Anne of Green Gables books and Anne of Avonlea and so on. I really love those. I read them with my sister when I was younger. And then we would watch the movies with our mom and our little sisters. And then as my daughters got a little bit older, we would read through them as well and watch the movies. So yeah, definitely a really special series that, that Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote. A lot of good memories there. Yes. Well, we always like to ask this question on the show. Is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Nothing in particular springs to mind other than I live on a mountain in a very remote area. (laughs) And it's very quiet and a wonderful place to write. And I feel very blessed in that, that God has brought us out here to the Wild West. But it's not particularly surprising, or I can't think of anything too fascinating that way. That's cool that he brought you out there. As we were talking before we started recording, you were sharing about how you said, we'll give it five years, and you've been there for 16. That's right, because we, as I had mentioned, we came from the Chicago area and it was is a very different lifestyle than that and I I hadn't even ever 
For example, I'd never grown a garden before because I never had land or space to grow a garden. And so out here, suddenly I have space and trying to, yeah, I consider every garden a giant experiment. And I tell myself I won't get upset if things don't grow, but I'm getting better every year. So. That is really cool. My grandfather had a garden and he could make anything grow. And I don't think I inherited that gene, but. <laughs> no, I'm no genius for gardening is suddenly appearing in <laughs> in my life, but it's fun. And it's, it's just gaining some skills like that, that I had never used before. It's a real, uh, a real change, but I kind of recommend something like that in, in midlife. If you start to feel stale, just pick up stakes and <laughs> change your environment. Just move halfway across the country to a place <laughs> you've never lived before. You can always move back. Five years. I figured five years was long enough to get over the honeymoon phase, but um, I could put up with anything for five years. And it turned out to be a very good move, so... It's cool how God takes us places sometimes and plants us there. It's just amazing when you have that feeling of being at home. It's cool. When you're at home in a place you've never been, <laughs> but you yes. come to it and you're like, oh, I feel right here. Yeah, I think that is the hand of God because we don't usually figure those things out for ourselves. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest release, Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams. Hollywood, California, 1933. Selling perfume in a department store is far from the life Helen Corrigan envisioned when she headed for Hollywood with stars in her eyes. Beneath the glittering facade, things in Tinseltown are seldom what they seem, and Helen fights to maintain her moral scruples amid trials and temptations. However, she's not about to give up on her dream. All she needs is a lucky break. But what if the only break involves her heart? Screenwriter Rusty Noble has one goal in mind, to make moving pictures that uplift and inspire their audiences. But his thankless job at Cooperman Studios keeps him toiling away on B-grade movies. Worse, box office sensation Cynthia Starling, beloved by audiences and detested by those who actually know her, won't let Rusty out of her talents. The idea of breaking away and starting fresh with his own studio seems like a sketchy pipe dream at best, a career-ending fiasco at worst. But when a new starlet enters his orbit, a starlet with the same vision for creating uplifting movies that he has, things start looking up. So we've got Depression-era Hollywood, young love, and a couple trying to make a positive difference while the film industry was in its infancy. So what role, if any, should Christians play in Hollywood? Well, I think Hollywood needs Christians, and most of all, Hollywood, the people of Hollywood need Christ. And I think Hollywood is just as valid a mission field as anything else. But historically, Christians have shied away from Hollywood and for obvious reasons. And I think we're, we're called to be examples of Christ's love in the world. And so for Christians to, to develop the skills needed for filmmaking and script writing and acting and to take those skills to Hollywood and work to transform the industry from the inside would be just a wonderful thing if that would happen. And that's what my characters are. They both love the Lord, but they also feel called to 
to the motion picture industry, which, as you said, was still quite young in those days, and but still rife with depravity. And like any art form, film can be used. It's just a tool. It's a neutral tool that can be used for good or for evil. And um, other new technologies, for example, radio. When radio was in its infancies, Christians were among the very first to make use of it. I was surprised in my research to find that some of the very, very earliest radio programs were on-air preachers who saw the potential for this new technology. And very early on in Hollywood, and we're talking, oh, it was even before it was technically Hollywood when the movie studios were back east. We're talking 1915, 1920. Some Christians did see the potential of film and were very excited about using film to reach people. But by the time of my books in, say, 1920s, 1930s, Hollywood had already gotten its reputation of being just a wild place. And instead of doubling down to have a stake for Christ in the film industry. It's almost like many Christians just turn their backs and we want nothing to do with movies at all. And and I just found that interesting. And I sort of forgot your initial question, but that's how why I think Christians should be in Hollywood. Even today, I think um, because it is such a powerful medium for reaching people, and for reaching people with the gospel that, yeah, Hollywood needs Christians. Yeah, you make a good point. And in the same way that Hollywood needs Christians, we need to have Christians in the film industry. Reminds me that we need to have Christian teachers in public schools and we need to have Christians in politics and, you know, in these environments that aren't necessarily godly. But there's definitely a place there and a purpose there and a need for someone who's going to show Christ's love and who's going to just be that light to the world. Well, and I think the one thing that can change and transform the industry, first you need, the hearts need transformation. And I feel if the hearts are transformed, then the industry will follow. At least a large segment of the industry could follow, and there's that potential. So that was my the theme behind what I was trying to convey that even back then, so we call it the golden age of Hollywood, and people will often say, oh, well, back then you had these great movies and you could safely take your family to the movies and not worry about being exposed to the things we are exposed to today. You make a really good point, especially when you talk about how it does need to be people on the inside of the industry because yes, people's hearts have to change first and you're not going to change people's hearts unless you know them and they know that you care about them. Correct. And so I love that these characters are an actress and a screenwriter who dream of teaming up to make wholesome God honoring movies. What kind of obstacles specifically do they face other than just the general fact that everyone around them doesn't care about that? Yeah. And it would be much the same today as back then that Many people in Hollywood are they're isolated from people of faith. They simply don't know any personally, and so they rely on stereotypes, their ideas of um, what Christians are, because they don't actually know. I've never met one. 
<laughs> in the wild kind of thing. And so the stereotypes they see are people sometimes who are judgmental or narrow-minded or hypocritical or calling to complain about the content of movies. Um, and they tend then to portray Christians in this way. And even back then, the idea was audiences, they want the depravity, they want the gory crime. Without taking into account, there's this huge swath of people who would just like a good story and not to be exposed to all these things. So there's a continual tension between what the studios are thinking audiences want and what they really want. And just the push and pull of who gets to tell the story. Movies are, as we've said, a great delivery system for cultural values. So who gets to control that lever? And so that's a continual, a continual tension. But I think most of all, just the Christians just being misunderstood of what they're trying to do and what the reality of what people be who believe in God, what they're really like versus the stereotypes. So th that would be a major obstacle. And just the, just the temptations that come if you are an actor or an actress and you are conventionally good looking and you get, there's a lot of people who would like to take advantage of you in various ways. If you're naive and you haven't been around much and promises are made and broken, and it's just a different, like any mission field, the values and morals of people are different and learning to navigate a strange and foreign land in a way. That's a really interesting just take on the perspective of people in Hollywood and the way that they see Christians. And as you're talking about that, it really reminded me of listening to, I have a relative who's a missionary and hearing her talk about the country that she's in and their perception of Americans and how the only perception they have is what they see on TV. And so there's this misconception that takes place. And I was just reminded of that as you're talking about someone in Hollywood not really personally knowing a Christian and Christians the way that we're supposed to be loving and non judgmental and helpful and whatnot. So that's a really interesting, yeah. What she said is really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And what can you tell us about Hayes Code, where movies are concerned? Okay, so what's important about the Hayes Code is it is responsible for a lot of how old movies versus newer movies are viewed. So when we talk about the golden age of Hollywood, we're talking about this time of what we consider the clean stories, the beat musicals, and the time when you could go to the movies and it was enjoyable and safe. And if Hollywood had its way, <laughs> we never would have had that golden age because even in the very earliest years, the studios were pushing the envelope on morality. And in 19... So I think it was 1930, there were two Catholic men who created a code of standards for the movie industry. It was called the Hollywood Production Code at that time, and it was a way for the movie industry to agree to 
self-censor the films that were meant to go to a wider general audience, the kind of movies that would come to your local theater. And part of the reason for this was to avoid a government regulation stamp down of Hollywood preferred to late themselves. So they started this code and at first it didn't get much attention. And then the Great Depression hit in about 1933 when my story is set and box office rates were falling and the Catholics and some other Christians threatened to boycott the movie industry because they were they weren't adhering to these standards. And so Hollywood, the Motion Picture Association appointed a man named William Hayes, and he was a former attorney general. He also happened to be a staunch Presbyterian, and he stepped in, and that's why they call it now the Hayes Code, because he was the one who really put a spine to this code, and his office worked with uh, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews primarily to set and enforce certain moral codes. And at that time, they were largely biblical, biblically aligned codes, let's say, but they didn't call them that. They didn't, but they would, if you look at what they were, they supported biblical morality in general. Some of them got silly, but but they would be things like, in general, they didn't want movies to lower moral standards or to make vice or crime look attractive to the audience. They always, for example, if a crime was committed, it always needed to be punished, or in some way justice had to be served by the end of the film. Or you couldn't have a criminal also be very be the hero, for example. Authority figures were to be treated with respect. In particular, the clergy could not be portrayed as villains, or held up to, but they were aligned to biblical values. And this held through the 30s, the 40s, and into the 50s. So that's when we say the golden era of Hollywood. And then toward the end of the 50s, it started to be more and more loosely adhered to. So by 68, I think it was completely abolished in favor of the the current rating system, of the Motion Picture Association, G-rated, PG, all that, replaced the Hayes Code. And we know how well that's, <laughs> that's worked out. But yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to me, for example, the Best Picture, the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1965 went to The Sound of Music. And by 1969, after the Hayes Code, it went to Midnight Cowboy. So that in that short space of time, that was how the the moral content of the movies changed. So that was the Hayes Code. Interesting. I've read about it some, and I think one of the things that I find the most interesting about it is how they say they required the good side to win in the end and the, the villain to receive their recompense. Because I think overall that creates inspirational stories more. Because, you know, at the end, you're, the hero triumphs, the person you're rooting for triumphs. So that may be why we look back and we say, those are the good old days as far as movies go. Because in the end, we know we're going to be uplifted. We know we're going to smile. Even if it was sad throughout, we know at the end, we're going to find something with hope and peace. So I think that's really yeah. cool about the code. 
or the criminal could receive redemption. He could turn his mm-hmm. life around by the end and be leading a, a better life. And we see that exactly of, of second chances. And yeah, so I think that is some of the quality that we find in today's movies. There, some of them, they're simply it's not enforced in the way that it was, obviously. But that is why Christians, I think, are needed even more in the industry to produce those kinds of stories that do leave people, who they leave the theater wanting to be better people and inspired and uplifted. And that is what my characters are, they're trying to create. But even with the code, people around them in the industry are all grumbling about the code. They don't, they don't want to, how far can we push it and still, and not get slapped down by the censors kind of thing, even back then. And of course, in real life, all the debauchery and things were going on behind the scenes, off screen. But still, there were stars at that time. In my research, I found, for example, Loretta Young. You're all too young to remember her. I've watched her. She's a beautiful actress. But she was a woman of faith. And Jimmy Stewart, uh, mm-hmm. the star of It's a Wonderful Life and many other movies, he was a strong Christian. And there were several others who even back then were... They were hold prayer meetings with studio personnel and just doing their best. They were very selective about roles they took. We do have some examples of people trying to live that way, but of course the tide is constantly pushing against. But those were the kinds of people I wanted to have my characters emulate. Very cool. Very interesting. You've definitely given us something to think about. I just love hearing about your book, Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams. And for our listeners, Jennifer has been so gracious to offer a copy of this release. To enter to win, just check out our giveaways page on historicalbookworm.com. You can also find the link for the giveaway in the show notes of this episode. And Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can our listeners connect with you? I have a website at jenniferlamontleo.com or I'm on Facebook and just look for jenniferleo.com and I'll pop up. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been a delight chatting with you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Now for a pinch of the past. On today's Pinch of the Past, we're looking at part two of the Band of Hope, a temperance league for children that started in the 1800s. So why was the Band of Hope important? In the end of the 19th century, the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children produced a report on the maltreatment of children. To exhibit their findings, they used an imaginary city of 500,000 people of various classes and occupations. One-third were adults and two-thirds were children. They concluded that 50% of the streets were inhabited by drunkards and that 50% of cruelty and crime were directly connected to drink. Now, at the time, alcohol affected every part of the family unit when it was in the house. The Band of Hope grew from its humble beginning in 1847 By 1897, they had 3,238,000 
323 members. They were reaching children whose lives were directly affected by alcohol. According to History of Hope UK, formerly the United Kingdom Band of Hope Union, generally the conditions of children at that time were wretched and alcohol misuse was often implicated. For example, in children with irregular school attendance, children becoming street traders, physical harm to children, and sometimes death. It was in this environment that the Band of Hope was working. And it's interesting to think about while they were trying to encourage these kids to avoid alcoholism and not perpetuate the things that were being done to them, it was also a place of safety and community for them, something that was good in their lives. That's, it's interesting if you break that down from like a psychological point of view, what they were doing was huge. Mm -hmm. And we know that the temperance movement really helped to affect the change in parliament and society and laws that were passed. So I have some important acts here that the Band of Hope helped to bring into effect. So in 1889 and 1894, the Cruelty to Children Acts established the right of the nation to give children the rights their parents had denied them. In 1901, the Intoxicating Liquors Sells to Children Act was passed, which prevented the sale of intoxicating liquors to children under 14, except in corked and sealed containers. In 1900, 19- so I know. theoretically, <laughs> they're taking it home to their parents rather than uh, interesting. Mm, I don't know, but it had to start somewhere. Uh, yeah, exactly. You guys start somewhere. Mm -hmm. In 1909, another act excluded children from such parts of licensed premises where consumption of liquor was the chief feature. Newspapers reported that this act had a dramatic effect in almost all public houses and children were no longer to be seen with parents in bars. From 1909 onwards, the school syllabus included education on alcohol, its problems, etc. Originally, this included the promotion of temperance. The misuse of alcohol was thought to relate to the misuse of food. The educational approach today relates it to the misuse of drugs. So despite this kind of serious and bleak reminders of our fallen world, it's encouraging to see that the same issues of addiction that we see today were experienced and also responded to in the past. When I look at the missionaries, advocates for protecting children, and intemperance leagues throughout history, I'm deeply encouraged that God did and still does use finite people in small ways to affect an infinite change. Time for our bookworm review. His Delightful Lady Delia, American Royalty, book number three by Grace Hitchcock. Behind the curtain, she must put on the performance of a lifetime while love and risk take center stage. Delia Vittoria's mother has lost her voice at last. After five years of being her diva mother's understudy, it is time for Delia to assume her place as the lead soprano on stage behind the Academy of Music's faded velvet curtain. And she has all that stands between the Academy and its greatest threat the Nouveau Riches' lavish new Metropolitan Opera House. Kit Quincy never misses opening night, but when his sister begs him to help get her husband out of an Italian opera star's arms, Kit accidentally confronts the younger Lady Vittoria instead. When he meets the stunning young diva again, he attempts to make amends, but then finds himself pulled into a society matron's plot to win the great opera war. 
To draw attention to Delia Vittoria as the Academy's new soprano star, Kit is convinced to act as both Delia's patron and the enigmatic phantom who once haunted the Academy years ago. But when a second phantom appears, more than Delia's rising career is threatened. Today's Bookworm Review is brought to you by Christy Kay of the Historical Bookworm Review team. As a rising opera star, Delia is determined to steer clear of her mother's philandering ways and try her best not to have her questionable heritage stain her future. When accusations are thrown her way due to a misunderstanding, the man in error, Kit Quincy, upends her life to make things right. Opera stages, this story takes the reader to opera stages and beyond. Through proper society, etiquette, and the bending of rules, and into the precarious realm of love with all of its complications. The story and its endearing characters kept me reading well into the night and woke me first thing in the morning to finish this delightful read over coffee. A fitting end to a beloved series, His Delightful Lady Delia by Grace Hitchcock is a must read. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.